friend and colleague. It's Nikki from Full Voice Music. And on today's podcast, season premiere for season six, episode 144, my delightful guest is Anne Bolts. We are talking about her holistic teaching philosophy, everything from play-based learning and how she uses improvisation to inspire creativity and freedom in singers. A fabulous, inspiring conversation with many teacher takeaways right here on the Full Voice Podcast. Hello, welcome and thank you. I am so excited. This is season six of the Full Voice podcast. I I cannot believe that uh, it's been six years and you know five five and something years ago my husband said, you know, you should think about doing a podcast because you talk about singing all the time. <laughs> and here we are today. I have to tell you that I am so excited for this season. Uh, we have an incredible lineup of interviews. I've already had wonderful interviews and I can't wait to share them with you. Plus, we are welcoming back our podcast experts, as well as introducing new experts this season. So we have so many amazing topics to cover. And um, as always, like in our previous years, we're talking all obviously about pedagogy, about teaching singing, but also about the business side of things, as well as best practices. And of course, we're going to share teachers, um, uh, experts who are just doing incredible things in our industry. And I'm so excited. And I'm very thankful that you are here. Now, before I introduce my incredible guest, I wanted to just say a few things. So first of all, um, I wanted a shout out to everyone who took the time to wish my family well. We ended the podcast season last year early because we were moving. So we said a very difficult, heartfelt goodbye to our friends and our family and our church family. Pastor Mike, get out of my office. Um, and we, uh, we packed up, <laughs> we packed up our house and our offices and my teaching studio and we now have relocated to the beautiful Hemford Forest in Nova Scotia. And moving out east was always a long time kind of dream. And we finally said, you know, what are we waiting for? There's just so many opportunities for us. And part of the reason, part of the reason that we were motivated to move had to do with the fact that after a year of working online with the Full Voice team, as well as with my students, I realized that really, you know, we could, we could work from anywhere. Well, as long as it had high-speed internet. We could work from anywhere with high-speed internet. So we are so happy to be here. And I do want to thank the teachers here in Nova Scotia that have welcomed us with open arms. So I want to shout out, first of all, Bethany uh, drove two hours from Yarmouth to Bridgewater so that we could sit down and have a coffee and chat all things singing. So hi, Bethany. Thank you so much for that. That was a lovely afternoon. I also have to shout out to Sarah Campbell, who is the president of the Atlantic chapter of the National Association of Teachers of Singing. She sent me a welcome email and it was so nice to hear from her. And I also have to shout out to Elise, the vocal warrior from Halifax. Elise sent me this beautiful Instagram message just welcoming me to the province. And it, I'm just so honored and, and thrilled that everyone took the time to do that. And for those of you who wished us well and and um, sent their well wishes on in our move, thank you. It, it really, I was just touched. I, I, 
I got emails and, and messages from people from all around the world, as far away as New Zealand, people were wishing us well. So thank you. I, I can't tell you um, how much that, that meant. And it certainly, I'm not going to lie, it was a very stressful time moving in a pandemic, not highly recommended, but <laughs> you got to do what you got to do. So I want to thank everybody. Now, I want to also mention to everybody that you can uh, have some fun on the Full Voice Podcast Instagram page. So throughout this season, I'm going to be sharing little clips from the podcasts, but I'm also going to be sharing some little bonuses and outtakes and conversations that happen while the while the uh, the record button is on, but maybe they get edited out of the of the podcast. So I want you to find and follow at the Full Voice Podcast on Instagram. You will be able to see all the fun behind the scenes, and um, that uh, you can reach out and and also um, uh, contact us that way too. All right, my friends, I'm so excited. You know this. I couldn't. I couldn't have had a better interview for the premiere season. This conversation with Anne Baltz is just a wonderful, wonderful start to any teaching season. Anne is recognized as one of the leading educators in opera in America. And her philosophy, her teaching philosophy and her approach, her holistic approach to seeing the singer and teaching the whole singer is just so inspiring. So I am so excited to welcome Ann Baltz to the Full Voice Podcast. Welcome to the Full Voice Podcast, Ann Baltz. I am so excited to talk to you today. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, it's such a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Oh, so long story, but it was my, it was here on the Full Voice podcast. I was talking to Eden Castile, and I asked. I always ask my guests what their favorite vocal warm ups are, and Eden brought out your cards, the Opera Works attitude cards, and we had such a fabulous time. And of course, I had to have them for my studio, so I purchased them. And ever since introducing your cards into my studio, I have had so much joy and laughter and discovery uh, with all ages. And ever since then, I've been been sharing them with, um, when I do teacher trainings, I have videos of my students literally coming to life with your cards. So first, I want to thank you for such a simple but profoundly powerful teaching tool. Well, you're welcome. And, and I'm glad that people are using them, that you're using them, that you made that available to other teachers, because I've just found that they, more than just about anything else, bring out so much from performers, from singers, whether it's instrumental or singers, mm -hmm. um, that I haven't figured out how to do any other way. So, and it's such a simple thing, you know. Well, and especially with everybody transitioning to online lessons, now we had this visual tool that it was so easy just to hold the card up to the camera and it was just perfect. Now, before I, before I want to, I, I do want to ask you some of your favorite techniques and, and ways of using them, but I have a lot of questions for you. Um, and I, I want to focus on your teaching philosophy, um, in, as it pertains to um, encouraging the creative performer, as it, as it pertains to creating safe spaces. And I, and I want to just take a little, um, a little clip from your, your uh, biography um, where you said that your, your experience uh, in, as, as a piano student was from the play, stop, correct, repeat tradition of teaching and, and how it really impacted you. Can, can you speak to that? Sure. Um, so as a pianist, you know, I've been playing all my life. And so I had a teacher I adored and, 
as um, I was in a lesson, piano lesson, and she had, um, so I was in a piano lesson and I was playing a piece, obviously. And um, so she would stop and correct me and then I would play again and she would stop and correct me and I would play again. And after, you know, this had been going on for months and one day I just lost it and I just closed the lid to the piano and I said, am I doing nothing right? And she said, well, of course you are. And I said, well, how would I know that? Because the only thing I'm hearing is what needs to be fixed. And she, it it just occurred to me in that moment that I could not be the only person (laughs) who was feeling that way. And it was, um, it, it, the work that I end up doing and the reason I started Opera Works uh, 30 something years ago was because I didn't want anyone else to feel that way, that they didn't know what they had to offer. They didn't know what they brought to the table. They didn't even know if they had anything worthy to continue. And I thought, you know, I had a lot inside and I was feeling it, but obviously I didn't know how to get it out. And my feeling was that was up to the teacher to help me, not to tell me how to do it, but to help me find my own musical voice. Um, and so that's that's the way I've tended to view teaching, which is it's not the thing we're teaching, but to also include the person behind that. You know, are they a goofy person and we only give them serious pieces? Or are they a serious person and we're trying to break them out of their shell and it's just painful for some reason, you know, we just never know. So finding who that person is, finding ways to open the door to that person, um, those are all things that have become very important to me to include in the way I approach people and and the way I teach. I I'm so thankful that you're bringing this up because I think that many of us came from the master apprentice approach. We, mm-hmm. we, it was the, you, you met the master at their level and you received instruction and correction and you didn't really have that opportunity to explore or play-based learning, right? That just, Mm -hmm. just that freedom. Like we've never been able, nobody's held space for us to, to have that freedom to just try something without, without the worry of right or wrong. Right. And when you started teaching and you recognized that your teachers didn't give you this space, did you find it challenging to leave that master apprentice approach behind? Was it challenging for you to change your approach or your language or how you held space for your students? Yeah, it did take a while just because that was the paradigm. Right. You know, that was the way I was taught from age four about the piano. And that was what I saw all around me. And it wasn't until I experienced improvisation at the piano for singers, that I realized that there really is no right and wrong. Mm. Um, That there are different ways that those black dots on the page can be played, interpreted, played with. Um, And sometimes, um, so backing up. So that really broke me from the right-wrong approach. And then learning how to reframe how I said things. So it's not so much, um, no, not like that, like this, now play it again. But it was more, um, and I learned this from Wesley Balk, who was um, had started Minnesota Opera and was pretty out there in the opera world, but I was his um, assistant for many years. And he made a distinction between giving feedback as observations rather than judgments. And I found that really helpful because if we just say, yeah, that wasn't good or that was terrific, then the singers cannot go back in the practice room and try to be terrific 
or try not to be bad. But if the feedback is in the form of an observation, such as, um, you know, that really worked, that breath was really under that phrase. Now let's look at the next phrase and see if that can continue. So that's an observation. That support was under that phrase. Or um, I can tell you really practice this at home because your diction is much clearer. Those are observations that can be repeatable in a practice room as opposed to, "Mm, yeah, yeah, you're going to have to work on that some more. That is not helpful. That just gives them nothing to go on. So back to your question, um, starting with a positive feedback. After they've done something, always start with a positive feedback. That's why I worked with the teachers at Opera Works, our faculty. It's like the first thing out of our mouth has to be something positive. Because, especially for singers, you know, singers' instrument is their entire body, which is hooked up into their soul, which is hooked up into their very being. So, to be a singer, they have to imagine that there are doors in front of their heart So when they sing, they need to open their hearts to express what they want to say with the piece. Then if they are stopped and it's negative, they have to close the doors to protect their heart. This is how I see it, to protect their heart. Then they sing again. They have to open the doors. After a while, that is exhausting. And they just leave the doors closed because they know when they're going to, when they are stopped, it's going to be a negative comment because that's the pattern. So it's up to us with a positive comment. It keeps that door open and they feel like, okay, that worked. Let me hear what else they're going to have to say as opposed to protecting their hearts because they know it's going to be a negative comment without the balance. There there needs to be a balance. I mean, we can't just say great, but there has to be a balance between the positive observations of what worked and what we need to work on. That's, that's the key. That's so powerful. That's so powerful. I love that analogy of the door to the heart. One of the things that I've seen time and time again, and it always, it always makes me so sad. I have a student that comes in and you know that they love to sing, but those doors have been closed for a long time. Mm -hmm. And how can we, how can we help those students? Like, how can we create that safe space? Knowing that there's no guarantees for safe spaces, but what are some of your strategies for working for those, with those students who just really have put those walls up and, and they're not showing you what they are about? Yeah, that's a great question. I would say one of the things I like to set up, um, well, I worked, I will, I will, I'll start with this. I worked with a singer once who, whose attitude about singing was it's hard, hard, gut-wrenching work. <laughs> and I thought, wow, that can't be enjoyable, you know? <laughs> so for me, what really helped me again was the improvisation mm-hmm. and the sense of play. And I think the play helps to break down that right wrong because that's why we're afraid that the criticism of that was wrong and I thought it was right. Um, so there's a way to to in to add play to the whole lesson. So for me, when I'm running a workshop, the first thing I try to do is be the silliest person in the room. (laughs) So I'll do examples of really bad singers and really good or stiff singers, non-expressive singers, and then ones that are overly expressive. And, And to me, if I can set the bar like that, if I quote the master class person or the workshop person, can be that ridiculous, then that just sets the bar really low (laughs) so that, or high, I don't know which way it would go. But you know, it's the sense of play 
so that let's try it this way, let's try it that way, let's try it this way. Which one did you like? Which one felt the best to you? Which one didn't? So that there's no, again, there's no right or wrong, but it's let's explore and opening that space and not giving negative feedback on the exploration. It's like, well, which one did you like? Why did you like that? Asking the questions to get them to start take agency over their own creativity. I like, I love the language that you're using, the agency over their creativity. I love that. I am curious, how, how do you approach improvisation with your, with your students? Um, Well, being the perfectionist, the recovering perfectionist that I am, but I started out with a, you know, with a lot of perfection and that was debilitating in terms of performing. And so I was just thrown into it in the course of a masterclass that someone else was teaching. They said, oh, we need a pianist, come and sit down and play. And so I sat down at the piano and all my colleagues and faculty were in the room watching and the singer was in the crook of the piano and she looks at me and she says, play something, play an intro, please. And I looked at her and I said, there's no music. And she looks at me and she says, play an intro, please. So I just played a C major chord. She looks at me and she says, play another intro, please. Oh my gosh, it was so just horrible because I was just, it just sounded horrible to me and I was panicking. And finally a teacher, while I'm playing, another teacher comes and sits down next to me and says, just play something pointillistic. And in my mind, that just meant make everything sound like a wrong note. So I just, you know, playing along and she's out there wailing away, making this aria up. And I thought, Now, that was pretty fun. So now what I do with singers, I've developed this whole curriculum so that we start with a cappella quartets. So there's everybody closes their eyes. They sit in a circle. They have physical contact and just vowels. And some of this you can see on on YouTube. You look up um, improvisation, opera works, or there's one on my website. And you can, although I don't think it has the acapella, but um, there's no right or wrong. They just have to listen to one another. So there's all these other advantages to doing this. But I have, then we move into, I will make up an introduction at the piano. Sometimes it's tonal, sometimes it's not tonal, depending on the singer. And, um, And they just start singing an aria or a song. And it's amazing what comes out of them. They will sing notes higher than they thought they could because they're not looking at the ledger lines. And they will, sometimes when there's a picture prompt, their subconscious makes up the words and it's very telling and very personal and beautiful. And they will make music like they've never made before because they're not faced with little dots that are beat into us that we have to do it right or wrong, you know? So those are one of the ways, and I've done entire recitals that were all improvised. And it's the weirdest thing standing, sitting in the green room with nothing in your lap, you know, looking at your music or standing off stage and being introduced to walk out there and play an hour and a half concert and, you know, singing. Um, and not having any idea what uh, that's going to sound like. So you can hear, again, on my website at the media, there's a bunch of examples of um, improvisations with singers, fabulous singers. When you were telling the story about have, being asked to to play an intro, I felt that. That was my first semester, because I went to, my post-secondary experience was jazz, and being trained classically and trained to read music, diving into soloing. And my first ensemble, it was like the teacher went around and we learned a song and then everybody did these solos. And I'm like, he's not going to ask the singers to do that. Like, that's just for the, that's just for the musicians to do. And sure enough, he got to me and all the color drained from my face and my stomach. 
And I, you know, the fight or flights, I, all I could hear was the blood rushing through my ears. And um, I thankfully, thankfully, uh, he was a, a lovely, lovely, kind human who gave me some first soloing strategies. Um, but it's, it's, it is, it just, there's just no, it's, it's, it's a fear and excitement all wrapped into one. <laughs> yeah. And it's usually just the first time yes. because it's the unknown mm-hmm. because now singers say, Oh my God, I would go anywhere. I would kill to go improvise. Yeah. I just, that's all I want to do now is just improvise because it's so fun because they have no boundaries and they can just sing whatever, you know, and the partnership feels like a completely open Avenue between me at the piano and them singing it's complete and then when one of us starts to think it's like this giant steel door comes right. down between us oh, and then yes. you have to fight to get back on track and get out of your head and I mean it's crazy it's just fun I would you know I've done complete operas that where the music was improvised um, to a written script wow. and we did 12 performances and every single we recorded all of them and every single one is different Oh, how fabulous. It is something else. And once you go down that rabbit, I mean, some people are drawn to it and some people go, yeah, that was okay. (laughs) I don't think I need to do that again. So, One of uh, of my students, I want to share this story with you. One of my students brought in story dice and they're dice that have little pictures on them. And there's about eight of them and you put them in a cup and then you shake them and you dump them out. And then you've got all these little images. So it could be like, you know, a dog, a hat, a sun, you know, um, stars, you know, like pizza slice. Like there's just all these cute little <laughs> pictures. And uh, she came in and she's like, I want to sing my story dice. And we just sat on the floor for an entire lesson and shook the dice and laid them all out. And then I, of course, you know, teacher, teacher Nikki's like, well, we got to put some musical things. What if this is in a minor key? What if this is like a scary story? And it was probably one of the most fun and inspiring. And also uh, what you said about, they sing notes that they would have never sung before. I, I learned more about this little girl's voice and how her capabilities in one fun little lesson than, than I would have sitting at the piano playing scales and arpeggios. Yeah. Teachers tell me that all the time when they hear the improv in the classes and they say, I had no idea they could do that. Right. And my question is, why not? Mm. Why not? So the best part of your story right there was the fact you sat on the floor with your student. You weren't sitting in the chair. You weren't, you know, you were on her level. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of the biggest changes that I, I made in the languaging, which is rather than using the word you, I use the word let's all the time. Nice. Let's try this. Let's look at this. Let's do this. So it puts us on, it draws me down from you are the master. I just can't stand that, mostly because I don't like masters to tell me what to do. <laughs> and there's a whole history there. But um, yeah, it, to use the word let's means that we're in this together. I have, my, and in the studio, I feel like I have my job. I have my experience and my training and you've come here, but your job is to explore on your own, go home and work and then come back. Mm. And then we put this together and then we do that again. So it's a, we are equals in a way in this process. I have my job, you have your job. I do my 50%. I expect you to come and do your 50%. I'm not going to do the 30% that you didn't do. I'm just going to wait here till you're ready. Nice. To do your 50%. Mm-hmm. So the let's versus you has made a big difference, I think. Do you have other examples of of maybe language cues that you use for, for the same purpose to bring bring the 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 
the teacher and the student together as a team? Or do you have examples of how, you know, tricky technical things that you want to address, but you do it in a way that is keeps those doors open? I think a lot of it is incorporating the singer into the process. So it does it, so it's not a one-way street. Right. But what are you feeling? What are you feeling when you do that? What are you um, tell me? Help help me find a way to this is what I hear you doing, ba 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 ba. This is what I'd like you to hear. So if if I'm hearing ah and I want to hear ah, then if I do those back to back for them, sometimes if they're hearing dominant learners, they will hear the difference. Mm. And just sometimes people will, I know for me, I had teachers who would correct me and I think, yeah, but I was doing that because they didn't, they didn't do what they'd heard me do to give me a con, um, contrast. This is what I'm hearing. This is what I'd like you to do. This is what I'm seeing. This is what I'd like to see. Um, that kind of that kind of language. The listening to them. Um, is this working for you? You know, mm. just asking. Is this working? So putting ourselves in, making ourselves available and vulnerable in a way that we don't have all the answers. How's this working for you? So more like a, a facilitator rather than a teacher. Yeah, a guider, a guidance. Yeah. yeah, a facilitator. I like that. It's more of the Socratic method of teaching, which is asking more questions than the didactic, which is here's the information, here's how you do it, go home and practice. Mm. So those are two. And for me, the Socratic method works. Boy, you just find out a lot from asking questions. A lot. Sometimes it's what they do say, and sometimes it's what they don't say. Right. Oh. Now, now you talk a lot about different learning styles and different learners. Um, do you do some like formal assessments of students to find their learning styles, or is it just from observation? Like you can tell from working with them how they prefer to receive their instruction. Yeah, it's like. It, a favorite topic of mine because it's fascinating. Yes. Fascinating. You know, basically for, for singers, for musicians, there are singers being musicians. I was including them in that category. Mm -hmm. um, we learn, we as musicians learn four different ways. Basically, we're either aural learners, the way we hear, visual learners, Kinesthetic, uh, so visual learners, what we see. Um, kinesthetic learners, how it feels to us doing it. And cognitive learners. So let me go through those. So the oral learners will generally use language like, oh, I hear what you mean. They will also be, um, they will be able to replicate melodies quicker. They will be able to... Um, they usually have better diction because they can hear the ins and outs and the details and the diction. Um, the visual learners tend to use the words, oh, I see what you mean. I see. And they tend to, when they're performing, they tend to see the page as the, that they've memorized because that's how they've learned. Um, they, like, they like to watch you demonstrate. They like to see what you want their tongue to do, what you want their rib cage to do. They want to see that. Um, the kinesthetic people are generally, they want to do it. That's how they learn. They feel very, they feel strongly when about the music. Um, so they, they will relate to the emotions of the music or key colors. And they tend to use the language, oh, I feel like it should be this. And the cognitive learners are the ones who like the explanations and the analyses. They're going to like to have all of those um, diagrams and the, they want to, um, they just want you to explain. They're the ones who are going to ask a lot of questions and take a lot of notes. And if you ask them to try something, they'll want to know why. 
And so rather than say, it doesn't matter, that's really frustrating to them. It's better to say, you know, let's try it first and then we can talk about it Oh, because then they know they get the goodies. Mm. Um, and, and interestingly enough, the way they perform tends to mirror the way they learn. So the visual people tend to be very expressive facially. The oral people have beautiful line and diction and the kinesthetic people move well. And the cognitives need to move into a different style when they're on stage because <laughs> they're the ones with a lot of self-talk going through their heads, you know. Oh, um, so helpful. So, And as teachers, we tend to assume that everyone learns the same way we do. So when there's a cognitive teacher explaining because they're a cognitive learner and you've got a kinesthetic person who's in who's their student, the kinesthetic person just wants to try it. Just just let me try it. But this the teacher really wants to explain it, make sure they get it. <laughs> but they're working across purposes with one another because oh. give them a little bit of information, let them try it. A little bit of information, let them try it. And then ask, so what do you think about that? That's the key word. The cognitive people, learners tend to use I think. Oh, so It's fascinating. It's just fascinating. So when I teach pedagogy classes, this is where I start so that we can all have a common language about pedagogy. I, uh, that is so helpful. And, and I just, um, I love watching. I love watching my students, like all ages, but especially my little ones, right? Because they're they don't have those filters, so yeah. they are very good at either telling you or showing you how they want to be taught or how they need to be taught. And and I know in my early years of teaching, I missed all those cues because I wanted to talk their faces off and they just want to <laughs> sing. And I have a little post-it note on my, on my well, it, now it's on, my lessons are on Zoom. So now it's on my monitor, which is just a little like zip it, you know, less talking, more singing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I also wanted to ask you, you mentioned that you were a recovering perfectionist. And I know that that is always a challenge in our studios when we have that student that is has those perfectionistic tendencies and how challenging it is. What what was helpful for you as you were learning to manage those expectations? A couple things. One was improv. Okay. Um, because you can't be perfect. There is no perfect. Um, another thing is that um, what I do now is that um, we'll play the game of, of opposites or at opera works, we had inappropriate days. So that, because perfection means that we're trying to be appropriate, we're trying to do it exactly right so that we can't be criticized because then we will be accepted and not move to the edge of the herd. Mm. So, if we can just on purpose have them do sing your piece in the most inappropriate way. Wow. Then what happens is they realize that the earth did not stop rotating, <laughs> that people did not run out of the room, um, that everybody is still there. In fact, it might have been comical and people were enjoying it. So there's a lot of value to having people try it the opposite way or doing it inappropriately. And I have found that those two things have been really helpful. The other thing is there was a point in my life when I just stopped. I'm a pianist, uh, an accompanist, mm -hmm. or they call them piano collaborators now, collaborators. So it was just, I would go out there and if I made one mistake, I felt like it invalidated my entire performance. And so I thought, you know, this is not fun for me and it's probably not fun for the people listening. So I'm going to stop for a while. Then it came to the realization some months later that there is no, well, I cannot, I cannot please a hundred percent of that audience. It's just impossible. 
So I'm going to go with 50-50. So if I can please 50% of the audience, they're going to like what I do. And 50% don't, well, I'm just running it right down the middle. So I'll, I'm good with that. So that allowed me to just give myself permission to go out there and play the way I wanted because I was only trying to appeal to 50% of the audience. And um, so those, I guess it was three things. That's so helpful. I, I wanted to, I wanted to dive in to some of your strategies when you use your attitude and gesture and movement cards. Would you share some of your techniques or some of the stories that you've, you've um, maybe had with using them with some of your students? Yeah, thanks for that. Um, so I can use them two ways with, um, with people I work with. And one is we use it arbitrarily. So I'll just open up the whole deck for them with face down and I'll say, pick three cards. Ooh, okay. And let's just incorporate, let's just incorporate those in your song. I don't care what they are, just do that. Um, sometimes I will take them and then just, I'll have other people in one in a class and I'll hand out the cards. Everybody has a stack of three or four and I have them all hold up, you know, put one on the front and the other two are behind and they'll hold up the cards and the person singing just has to go around the room and do whatever on the card. And once the singer has done my card, then I take that front one and move it to the back. Now they have another card to look at as they come around the next time. And that's always fun. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then we discussed, you know, did any of those look weird? Did any of those seem inappropriate? You know, what happened from the audience point of view and what happened from the singer's point of view so that it's not just, we did the cards, but what did we learn from doing the cards? And what generally singers will learn is that they have either they're much more rubber faced than they thought, or there were many more opportunities for variety in the piece rather than this is my three minute sad piece. This is my rage aria for four and a half minutes. You know, that so that's how I use the attitude cards more specifically. Then what I will do is ask the singer. Um, you know, it depends on the singer, but I'll ask them to break it down, break down the pile into three categories. Absolutely. Yes. These would fit this piece. Mm, These might fit the piece. Oh, these would never fit the piece. And then ask them to pick the majority from the yes pile, just like shopping. So pick from the yes pile and then some from the maybe pile. And one or two from these would never work. Oh, interesting. And then, and then to kind of lay them out so that they have them as they're singing their piece, they can look and pick and choose. Mm. But they've chosen those specifically for that piece. Mm, that's fascinating. So with the gestures, what I generally do is I'll, I will take several gestures that I think would fit a piece that they're doing. And some of them are, you know, like pick your nose or something, you know, maybe I'll throw that in. But if I'm really (laughs) working on a piece to bring out what some possibilities are, these are to build a vocabulary, basically. That's what they're doing rather than right hand up, left hand up, both hands up, hand to heart, you know. So I will just lay them in the, on the floor in front of the singer. And as they're singing, I'll say, just pick one and do it. Pick one and do it. So it's the gesture. And then there are several movement cards like um, walk walk forward, walk backward, turn around, look up stage, you know, absolute whole body movements versus hand to collarbone, fingers to collarbone, um, push back your hair, that kind of thing. And these pieces will just come alive. I'll say, see if you can make these work. That's the other part. Here they are. So don't just do them. 
but see if you can make them work. And also what singers will tend to do because it's their habit is they will do them in slow opera tempo. And there the hand is finally to the head. So I have to try to, sometimes I will say, let's pause, not stop, but let's pause. See if you can make these more at your own normal speed rather than opera speed. Ha, have laugh. So when they do that, all of a sudden we're seeing a human being, a real person singing these words and making sense and looking like they are living what they're saying. It's amazing because they've, they've just gone through 12 gestures and four body movements. I love what you said about like, you know, the get, it gets them out of the the go-tos, right? I find all singers, myself included, we have our favorite safe gestures or movements that we know are safe and will be okay. But introducing those cards, now all of a sudden I have to try something else. And like you said, I did this and the world did not stop revolving. And oh, now I have introduced a new gesture. I found that very helpful um, for some of my singers that have the robotic either one arm, two arm, or the the pleading. I, yeah. I call it the waving of the air in front of you <laughs> gesture. <laughs> right, but right. I've I've had great success with that. And I the other the other thing that with the with the kids, like even even doing so the little video that I show, so I do a teacher training and I am using your cards and it's with my, my favorite. Well, they're all my favorite, but, uh, my favorite little one and she's nine and she's it's, it's Canada. It's February. We're in lockdown. It's dark and it's cold and we're on a zoom call and she's just sitting there very quietly and we're doing tongue twisters. And then I brought out the attitude cards and then she sat up and her face lit up and this actress came out and the giggles came out and it was just such a it was such a wonderful beautiful moment to see and when we were still focusing on the diction and we we're still applying that but it was just so so lovely to see that switch and that energy you know and i i have to thank you for them they're just so so wonderful um i also tortured my um, and that is the light. That's the word I'm going to use. I have avocational adults and through the pandemic, we, we did, um, we called them sip and sings. So it was a zoom where everybody got to perform. Um, but we played with the cards and it yeah. was, it was just joy and some incredible performances, like incredible, like out of their comfort zone new energy, um, both in their singing and in their body language is just so wonderful. Yeah. I think that one of the advantages to the cards, which I love using them for is that sense of play mm. that, you know, how could I do this very sad song? And my card says hilarious. <laughs> right. Well, a lot of people cover up big pain with laughter, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, it, it's not that strange. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. The uh, Have you used the musicality cards in the pack? Oh, legato. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yes. Those are those are so helpful, too. Um, especially especially, again, if you're trying to if we're doing technical exercises or we're trying to have uh, or we're, we're working on a small piece of the music, those are so helpful. So helpful. Yeah, you know, an un unexpected benefit to those, which I've discovered, is when I'm working with an older singer who's working, you know, who's um, working on their piece and the pianist is playing. Give them those cards. Don't let the pianist see. Mm -hmm. And what happens is the singer starts to lead. And usually singers, particularly at the university or high school level, they're used to being told by the pianist how the piece goes mm -hmm. predominantly. Mm -hmm. So here, they're the ones in the driver's seat because the pianist has to follow them. It's very interesting 
And I had not expected that, but it happens every time. Oh, that's so helpful. Um, and I, I can't thank you enough for your time today for learning about your teaching philosophy and everything you do. And, and like I said, your, your cards are simple, but profound, profoundly useful and a wonderful teaching tool. And I know that, uh, um, I highly recommend them and, and, um, I hope that more teachers will check them out. Where can my listeners find you? Where's the best way for them to reach out? I have a website Mm -hmm. because that's what we do these days and it's (laughs) annbaltz.com. So that's A-N-N B as in boy, A-L-T-Z.com. And the cards are there. The improvisations are on there. Um, you know, pictures, the normal thing. So, um, yeah, thank you, Nikki. Thank you so much. I mean, you and I, I've heard about you and, and looked at your website and looked at all these wonderful things. I've heard your other podcasts. So when you asked me, I just thought this will be fun. <laughs> well, and I think I can't thank you enough. And, and I do want to, uh, I do want to keep that. I do want to keep that door open. Uh, perhaps uh, you could come back and we could dive more into that improv uh, oh, topic. Yeah. I would love to talk to you more about that. That would be fantastic. That'd be great. I'd appreciate that. All right. Thank you. A very special thank you to Anne for that incredible conversation. What amazing teacher takeaways to start our teaching season off with. Now, I want to tell everybody that next week, we are going to be talking to Phyllis Horridge. Phyllis not only is an incredible private voice teacher, but she's also an actor. Phyllis is going to help us to find some excellent first monologues. That and so much more on episode 145 coming to you in two weeks. My friend and colleague, as always, I am wishing you inspired teaching and happy singing. Made by Canoe Music Productions.